All right, folks. Hey, welcome to uh, to worship. As we're the ushers are going to help you find a seat if you haven't found one yet. If you're coming down the hallway, if you're coming down the hallway, you can't hear me. Hey, out there. But anyway, um, but uh, and if if need be, we do have overflow uh, in meeting room A and B. So so not not to worry. Um, so we're going to get started with a, a great great chorus. How great is our God? Let's stand together and sing it. How great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God?
understanding. On this Memorial Day weekend, we're going to ask our Minister of Education, who is also, by the way, a North American Mission Board-appointed uh, Air Force chaplain, James Stryker, come and, and uh, pray for us, please. This weekend, we celebrate a very special moment for our country. Amen. There are men and women who gave their lives and who are actively serving today who will give their lives in the service of our country. And it would, it would be an honor to pray this morning for them and their families. Let's join together. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We ultimately thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the freedom that he brings to our hearts and our souls. Oh, Father, this morning and this weekend, it's much more than just spending time with family or around a barbecue grill, but Father, we're, we remember the freedom that has been granted to us by generations before us, by men and women who are currently serving, Lord, and in, in giving their all, even their lives, for our freedom. Father, we just pray a special blessing upon the families that grieve in silence and remember the loss of their loved ones this weekend. Father, I pray that you would just bless them. I pray that you would comfort them. And God, we thank you for the men and women who are voluntarily raising their hand to serve and stand in our place to grant and continue to give us that freedom. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that. And we just pray that you would help us remember that and celebrate in that. For it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are excited that you are here. Amen. And uh, this morning, if you're a guest with us in the pew in front of you, there's a little connection card. We'd like to get connected with you. If there's any way that we can pray or minister to you and your family, we just invite you to fill out that card. And uh, we'll have a plate in the back as you leave this morning. We just invite you to drop that in there. Uh, we won't bother you or annoy you with lots and lots of letters and information, but we just want to reach out to you. If there's anything that we can do, we want to be a blessing to you and your family. Thank you for being here this morning, and let's continue worshiping together. Amen. Well, uh, as you know, we're in the book of Ruth, and um, uh, like, uh, like Ruth, we all need a redeemer. Amen. And here, here's one thing, a characteristic of all those that uh, have received a redeemer uh, that I know, uh, and I think you'll, you'll see the same trait. They want to tell about it. They want to sing about it. And so that's what this song says, I will sing of my redeemer. Let's do just that. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered, from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh sing of my Redeemer with His blood. Say in his boundless love. 
being set free. Maybe seated. This last or this next song that we're going to do is a relatively new song. We've done it a couple of times. He will hold me fast. And young people, the word fast here means secure, certain. He will hold me fast. Listen and let's meditate as we listen to this great old hymn, Be Still My Soul. What an appropriate hymn for today's time. Thank you. 
stands with us. Oh, when I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful past. For my love is often cold, He must hold me fast. He will hold. He will hold me fast. saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall say thank you oh my father for what you've done for me I don't know how we can sit down and say that amen there is a redeemer and he is Jesus amen 
Well, good morning. We, uh, you guys realize how difficult it is to make decisions nowadays with the coronavirus and leading the church and thinking about attendance, and we decided we would do one, and I think we were very close. I think we have a, a few people that had to go over to the overflow, and I hate that, but I uh, want to tell you that next week, due to information that we have proceeding into the month of June, that we will go back to the two services next week. We thought we may can make it two because of people traveling and vacation, but the fact is we'll be back on the 31st and probably through the entire month of June doing 9 and 11. But it is such a blessing to look out and see this many people uh, in the congregation. And so to God be the glory and pray for us as we make decisions. We vacillate because... The people in leadership above us vacillate. Okay, it's just the way it is, and so it's it's difficult right now. We're doing our best, and be patient with us. And Lord willing, we'll all be back in here singing "Jesus, Our Redeemer" as an entire congregation before too long. And praise the Lord for that. Ruth chapter three. If you'll make your way there, I think it was Huxley, uh, the atheist, who described God as the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. You know, that cat kind of comes at will and goes at will, and he's grinning every time he comes. And so Huxley, of course, was an atheist. And so he believed that the concept of God was kind of an outdated thing, and he believed that 
We just had a meaningless cosmos that was kind of like this cat showing up ever so often to grin and then go away. But we know better, don't we? In the book of Ruth and obviously throughout the scripture, we learn that our God is the God of history. And it is not a blind, the world is not a blind product of chance. Whether we think on the grand scale universally or if you think on the scale personally, life is not about blind chance. Our God, or let me say it this way, our world and your own personal life has an author. And he himself will conclude the drama one day. We know that. We see that in the word of God. And uh, steps are being taken at this moment by our God to roll back that curtain. And occasionally he rolls back the curtain in order for us to look into his providential ways. Uh, We talked about concurrence and the fact that God is at work and he is acting And he is acting when his people that are called by his name and that are called by his purpose and love him. When you're acting and making decisions, our God is at work. What is he doing? Ephesians 1.11. God is doing all things and working all things out unto the counsel of his will. Now, we may struggle with that. But that's what the verse says. God is working all things out according to the counsel of his own will. And that's what we see happening in Ruth. And so today, we're going to see his providence working together for redemption, okay? And that's why we sang the songs. Uh, You almost sometimes wish we could preach the sermon first and then hear the song so so it resonates in your heart and mind what the text is actually saying. So here it is, Ruth chapter 3. Let's read this narrative together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should should I not seek rest for you? That it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? So he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now, it is true that I am a Goel, redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said to her, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. 
And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, can y'all see Naomi's wheels turning? Good Jewish woman. She's already plotting and planning. Uh, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right. One of the dangers of preaching an Old Testament narrative is that we go to the passage and we look for things that are just not there. I don't know if you've been guilty of sermonizing or trying to add something into the text that's just not there, but we make that danger sometimes. We step over the lines of trying to find out things that are hidden under there that are just not there. But we also can go into the danger of moralizing a passage. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we have the propensity to to go to a passage like Ruth chapter 3 and just teach the morals that you see there. Now, is it wrong to teach that we should have good morals? Of course not. It's not. But when we slide over into moralism, then we're in trouble. Now, if we're looking at uh, moralism, we may say something like this from the text. We can say that this text is teaching perhaps three things to uh, apply to your life when you find yourself in a compromising situation. Because you see Ruth before Boaz, and you could think, well, I mean, what integrity, and all those things are true. Those morals are true. Or, uh, for some of you ladies, better yet, we could say, this text gives us seven keys to securing a good husband. (laughs) Be real careful. Right, ladies? Be real careful there. And it's not wrong to teach moral principles from the text. We're going to draw some of those. That's not what I'm saying. But the inherent danger is teaching moralism which is legalism. What that does is ignores the grace of God in your life. In other, in other words, if you can be morally good, then you don't need Jesus. But the fact is, you can't, right? So as we preach this sermon, and as you read the Bible, and as you hear a sermon, understand that the distinctive for Christian preaching is the fact that the all-prevailing presence of Jesus Christ is here saving and sanctifying. If he doesn't save... Uh, then you're not saved. If he's not sanctifying, then you're not becoming more like Jesus. So it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, The things we do as believers is because we have been saved by grace through faith. We have had our sins forgiven. Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon that we preach. This is not only true in the sermons that we preach for edification for the body of Christ, but it's also true when we preach the gospel. When we give evangelistic messages, sometimes Jesus is even missing from an evangelistic message. Really, if you listen to the TV today and hear what men would call an evangelistic message, but it says nothing about sin and the gospel and about Jesus Christ. So, we need to keep something else in mind as we look at chapter 3. We've talked about how that certainly the book of Ruth is about the providence of God. Correct? For her to land in the genealogy of the Messiah. For her to be the great-grandmother of David. And then in the lineage of Christ. That's phenomenal. It's the providence of God. Here's the second thing, though. God has given you a snapshot into redemptive history 
when you study the book of Ruth. Don't forget that. When we get to chapter 3, this entire passage is not just about a love story between Boaz and Ruth. This story points you to the true and only kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that we've arrived at the point we've arrived at. When you sing the words, I praise you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. Do you really let that sink into your heart and mind, what it means to have a Redeemer? Oh, I hope the book of Ruth will help you see that as we draw to the conclusion of this sermon. There are also two other things I want to remind you of that are vitally important before we study chapter 3. Did you know that there are some Old Testament practices? There are some cultural uh, Things. There are some ceremonial laws that are in the book of Ruth and the Old Testament that we have no clue of today, nor do we ever participate in them because they were unique for Israel's setting, especially some ceremonial laws. There are two things that you have to know as you enter into chapter 3 that will help you. There are two laws that the reader must understand. And when the readers first read this book, when it was written and given to them... They knew exactly what this meant, but we don't today. The first one is the law of Leverite marriage. Underscore that in your mind. What is that law? Well, it's simply this. A woman who marries a man and he dies, leaving her no offspring, then her brother-in-law, which is the Latin translation of Leverite marriage, the brother-in-law or another relative among her husband's relatives have a moral obligation to marry her And raise up children to perpetuate the name of the deceased. Not only that, but to secure the property. And here's the big one. The solidarity of the family. This law of Leverite marriage was given as an act of love. It was given as an act of love from a holy God to people. Why? Because he cares about the family. Now again, there's there's much that we could talk about in regard to how our world undermines the family. And how our God puts the family uh, on a pedestal, and our God wants to work in the family, and he works for solidarity and unity. Okay, the obligation of the brother-in-law was not binding. The brother-in-law could refuse, or the nearest of kin could refuse Leverite marriage. Perhaps he was already married. Uh, Possibly he had his inheritance tied up with someone else and didn't want to risk losing his inheritance. Let's just be honest. He could have had another wife. Or he may not have been attracted to the woman. I mean, might as well shoot straight, right? That's highly possible. There are reasons the next of kin may say no. But if he said no, have you read your Bible? There were consequences. There was a procedure that would take place. It involved a shoe and the spitting into one's face. If you were a Jew... You would never show anyone your heel at all. Thus, for this particular procedure, you would take off your shoe and you would hand it to the person, which was the ultimate sign of an insult. Of course, we know how insulting it is to spit in someone's face. We don't have to go over that one. Now, if he refused this obligation, then he was disgraced by his family and he just went on off uh, to live his life. The other law that you need to know about is the law of the goel. So we have the Leverite marriage and we have the Goel. That word means a near kinsman or a kinsman redeemer. So the Goel 
or the kinsman redeemer would actually be the one that performs the function of the Leverite marriage. Y'all understand? It's important to know this. He would take the woman under his wings as his bride. Another purpose of the Goel, if you've read the Bible, is to redeem a relative from slavery. And that one is found in Leviticus 25, 48 through 49. There is another purpose, and that was to redeem the property of a relative, to keep that property in the family. We witnessed a little bit of this in foreign countries like Guatemala. When we start dealing with church sites and people who own land like Miss Glendy, there's this passing of this land down. And, and whatever it takes, the family will step up to try to keep the land in the family. Well, this will be one of the concerns in chapter 3. You're going to see this. You would also have the moral obligation to revenge blood. And this one has always amazed me. In Numbers chapter 35, there's an avenger who could be a relative of someone who was murdered or accidentally killed. And then you had the, you had the man slayer who actually performed it. And this dude would take off running toward the city of refuge. And if he didn't, and he had uh, unjustly killed, what happened to him? The avenger went after him. Now, I don't know how that would look in the United States of America if we had those laws. But if, if your brother was murdered, you had the right of an avenger. And you could go after that person. And it had the city of refuge all in there. You can read that. But what was it for? What was Leverite marriage for? What was the avenger for? Well, it was the solidarity and the well-being of the home. It was to, to secure shalom, peace, and well-being. So this law of the kinsman redeemer had strong personal and material responsibilities to it. Think about this. It had a cost involved. And even then, as a redeemer, you had to pay a price of redemption, which usually meant something of personal sacrifice. This is not just some random uh, law just wafted out of the air. God was in the midst of giving us this redemptive law. There's a reason for it, and God was working. He was working to show His faithfulness and His covenant love. Yahweh, throughout the Scriptures, is seen to be the Redeemer of Israel. Listen to this text. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Listen to Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and it's in all caps, Yahweh. I am Yahweh God, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Did y'all know that our God is the God of redemption? And God tells the Israelites, I redeemed you. I bought you. I paid the price. So thus he created this law of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, so that it points in the Bible to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously I just stole my own thunder, but in the flow of redemptive history, the role of the kinsman redeemer is perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was a lengthy introduction, right? But I'm not done. I'm done with the introduction, but not the sermon. Here, let's unpack it. Again, here's the preacher's responsibility. Don't moralize the passage. Preach what's in it. Preach the storyline of a narrative. You can't preach it like you do Romans. You can't preach it like you do Ephesians. I wish you could. Just point, bang, 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 and it's over. You can't do that with a narrative. You have to let the text drive the sermon. And I've, I've done the best I know how to give the points where they're applicational but also the heart of what's going on. Here it is. Remember the doctrine of concurrence? 
God is at work and we are at work and he is accomplishing his purpose. First, we should make wise plans while depending on the providence of God. Has anybody read 1 through 4 and thought weird? Come on now. Just straight up weird. Now, I've read a lot of scholars on this about this particular custom, uncovering the feet and all of this. And you're not going to find something verbatim at all given in the Bible about this. There are some Israelite customs that were, you could put together with this, but let's just be honest. This is a weird procedure. It's a strange way to land a husband. Uh, again, now think back a few verses. What... We know that Naomi's wheels are spinning. Uh, we can also bring back in the, the emphasis with Huxley being an atheist, thinking God's just off the scene, because you understand that between the ending verse of chapter 2 and first, chapter 3, verse 1, there's some chronological time. There could be two, three, four months. And it could be in their mind they're thinking, well, we, we gotta, Naomi says, we got to press down the gas pedal. This guy's not getting it. Uh, maybe he's not... He hasn't made any advances to be the, the Goel. Maybe he knows in the back of his mind there's another kinsman redeemer closer than I. And maybe he's making the advance. I don't know what the situation is. But keep in mind that our God is at work. Naomi's wheels are spinning. And she thinks about a plan that can land the man. I mean, that's what she's doing. She has a concern, though, for Ruth's welfare. Do you remember that prayer that she prayed in chapter 1? I'm praying that God would give you and Orpah husbands. I'm praying that. And so, obviously, that is going on in Naomi's mind. She's praying that her plan will be the plan of God. And God will providentially work in the midst of the situation. We could say that Naomi is planning based upon how God could fulfill the prayer. You ought to live based upon how God has given us his revealed word. Are y'all listening? I mean, people come to preachers and say... I just don't know what God's will is in this particular... 99.9% .9 of the will of God for your life is found right there in the Bible. There are a few little gray areas. Got it. I get it. But I'm telling you, folks, you've got, you've got the revealed Word of God right before you. And all God asks as a believer is you live what the Word says. I promise you God will take care of the gray areas. He will. God will do that. So, the object of her plan... And hope is brought up in verse 2. Again, notice, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So, Boaz is not the nearer kinsman. We're going to find this out. But, Boaz, but, but Naomi's wise, and she's shrewd, and she knows in her heart that Boaz is the man. You actually landed in Boaz's field. That wasn't an accident. He initiated the kindness toward you to begin with. He has abundant provisions. Her mother-in-law instincts kick in at this point, And she feels that Boaz, maybe secretly, has his eye on Ruth. I mean, we, there's some sanctified imagination, but just think about it. She's the mother-in-law, and she's plotting, and she wants it to happen. Verse 3 reveals the unusual mother-in-law advice. When it says cloak, some believe that this indicates a covering that shows that the mourning is over. That she's mourned over her husband and she's over it. And that she's available for marriage. She's serious about marriage. To uncover feet and lie down close beside. We have to say that was apparently a nonverbal custom for requesting marriage. Although there's a lot of, not a lot of documentation about that. But Naomi believes and affirms. 
that Boaz will understand the intentions and respond accordingly. Do y'all see how risky this is? I mean, this is a pretty risky plan. No matter how you slice it, this is weird advice. Now, does Naomi believe the providence of God? Does she? Folks, very few people, if any, have been through what Naomi's been through at this point in her life. You think about this. Lost a husband, both sons, left in Moab, which is my wash pot. You couldn't be further outside of the will of God. And she has absolutely nothing. She's, she's husbandless and penniless. And, of course, God is at work. But does she believe in the providence of God? Yes. But note this. Even though she believes 100% in the providence of God, she doesn't just sit and contemplate how God is going to work all this out. She's not paralyzed by indecision and fear concerning doing the right thing. And I have to say this about the coronavirus. If you've allowed this to paralyze you, I wonder where your heartstrings are. Folks, I want to remind you that trials reveal the contents of your heart. And if you think this is bad, this is nothing compared to what's coming in the future. I can tell you that, folks, because Jesus said it. Pestilences and plagues. But the end is not yet. That's what he says. We're, we're going to have... So, I understand balance here. And that's what we need as believers. We dare not show that we don't trust our God. We trust in the Lord our God. Okay, so here is Naomi. And she acts. And she's decisive. Why? Because she trusts the providence of God. Naomi uses some common sense. And comes up with a plan. I know it weirds you out. But it's a plan. Right? I think this is a very uh, positive model for reminding us that you can believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. That means that God is in total control. But at the same time, you can strategize. And you can act. Just because you believe that nothing comes to pass without His sovereign will. Doesn't mean you need to be indecisive and passive people. We should be people of action. And even risk, because we serve the God of the two-minute warning, right? He will get it right in the end. And he will win. Because the Bible says, and we know that all things work together. Do you really know that? And we know that all things work together for good. Two qualifiers to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So he will get it right in the end. The plan is risky. Naomi has tremendous confidence in the integrity of Boaz, doesn't she? You think back about the way he greeted his workers in the field. She, she knew full well about his integrity. Whether the plan is totally prudent or not, I don't know. But God sure does bless it, doesn't he? I don't think Naomi was afraid that Ruth would be taken advantage of by Boaz. But what if Boaz, in his integrity, read this plan, plan wrongly? And that's the thing I think probably was in her mind. I submit to you that it was Naomi's confidence in God. That encouraged her to trust the plan in God's hands. Y'all do remember Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9, don't you? The Bible says, the heart of man plans his way. Maybe we could say, the heart of Naomi planned her way. But the Lord establishes her steps, right? He does. The Lord is working. Okay, that's the first thing that we see in this text. We should make wise plans depending on the providence of God. That makes sense. Can't you apply that in your life uh, as a believer? Number two, the implementation of the plan involves sacrifice and bold obedience. We see this in verses 5 through 9. What does Ruth say? All that you say to me, I will do. What obedience? It's remarkable. Ruth pledges total obedience to Naomi's plan. 
Now the stage is set. It's showtime. I'm fast forwarding a little bit. But here is Ruth. Uh, the man uh, eats a big meal. By the way, there's nothing to imply drunkenness here. Just because he ate and drank, there's nothing implying drunkenness at all. As a matter of fact, I know what this feels like, and I don't drink. I'm a teetotaler. But I sure do like to eat. <laughs> and when my belly is full, if there's not a threshing floor there, there's a lazy boy there, right? And uh, hey, that's a man. Sometimes we like to take a nap before we go to bed, don't we? And that's the way I feel after I eat a big meal. I'm just kind of dazed out a little bit, and I want to sit down. Well, here is Ruth, and she's watching, and she's waiting, and then she acts. He wants to sit in his lazy boy, but it just so happens to be at a threshing floor. Why there? Well, protection of all that they had taken from the field for that amount of time and stacked up. You didn't want that to be taken away. He did have a home and probably had a bed, I'm sure. But here he sleeps on the threshing floor. The harvest is over. And the other reason would be he wanted to get the work to work the next morning immediately upon waking up. So he lays down. Ruth, meanwhile, is covered up with a shawl, and she's peeking around. Just get the picture here. Perhaps she hears that the dude is snoring, which my wife tells me I do. I remember this morning, she's like, poof. And she says, as good as that little woman can do to me, right? But she hits, and I, I startle a little bit, and I've rolled over. But perhaps maybe Ruth hears him snoring. She knows that he's gone. And the Bible tells us that she proceeds to uncover his feet and lie down. The idiom used here is for the midnight hour. So let's say around 12 o'clock midnight, bang, Boaz is startled. Now, um, you ever had half your body uncovered? There's a tendency for you to get a little startled, right? Perhaps that's what happened. Boaz was a little uncovered and felt like, wow, my feet are exposed or my legs are and I'm getting cold. Maybe it was something else. But the word is actually he trembled. Maybe this is cold feet before he knows he's getting married, right? But part of his body is uncovered. Surprise! There lies a woman. This is somewhat of a rude awakening. I know John Piper mentions what could have been going through Boaz's mind. It could have been, well, if you're a kid of refuge and you need help, I'll help you. That's the kind of man I am. Why are you here? Um, it could have been, if you're here as a woman who is making advances in impurity, you're out of here. I'm a man of integrity. But the fact of the matter is, there's a woman there. It's a rude awakening. Is this the first time in the Bible this has ever happened? Adam went to sleep. First surgery, right? Did he have any anesthesia, Andy? I don't know. But God helped him, of course. And he wakes up. And he's a married man. There's only one. But he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, hot dog. What I saw in those animals, I don't see in you. Right? You're, you're going to be my mate, right? How about Jacob? Poor guy, went to sleep, woke up, discovered he was married to the wrong woman. Good night. Uh, talk about fear factor, but that's what happens. Boaz says, who are you? What are you doing? Verse 9 brings us to the redemptive request. Isn't this awesome? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Your translation may say cover, but I disagree with that because it is the exact word that's used earlier in verse 9. Uh, earlier in chapter 1, uh, no, excuse me, chapter 2, of you seeking refuge under the wings of God. So it's actually chapter 2, verse 12. Same exact Hebrew word. St cover, stretch your wing or wings over me. 
Ruth had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. Did you know that our God was married through covenant relationship to Israel? Chapter 16, verse 8. The Bible says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. Marital words. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. That's awesome, isn't it? And that's what's lived out here. This is the reference here. So Ruth is saying, marry me. Her actions and approach weird us out because we live in the 21st century. Yet she is open and transparent. She's bold and courageous. The plan was no doubt risky. But we see that Boaz is a man of integrity. She is a woman of, of God. And Ruth, is, uh, her character is very symbolically displaying the humility that we ought to all have before our kinsman redeemer. Amen? She puts herself in the place of utter dependence. She comes in not demanding marriage or claiming kinship rights. She comes in submitting herself in humility before her kinsman redeemer. All right, number three. We trust the redeeming grace of the kinsman redeemer. In verses 10 through 18, Boaz begins to give this incredible prayer. Uh, before, if we didn't have verse 10, we would all be thinking, wow, what was Boaz's response? But here we have, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, if you are a romanticist like me, Oh, my wife looked up so fast, right? She's like, right. But does it bother you if you like romance for him to say, my daughter? Some of you are thinking, why didn't he say, bless you, Lord, my baby, right? Come on now. I mean, this is supposed to be marital, a union that's foreseen. But the fact of the matter is, that's tenderness, folks. He calls her my daughter simply because... He could very well be in his upper 50s at this point. Maybe a little younger, but notice how he says, you've not gone after younger men. So uh, we'll address that in a few moments. But the fact of the matter is, let's say this guy is 50. She is no more than in her upper 20s. So he refers to her as my daughter. Uh, again, the fact that Boaz is a godly man is one thing, but he actually lived it out in his faith. Notice verse 10. The covenant loyalty you are displaying right now surpasses the covenant loyalty that you displayed when you left your city and your country and your gods and you joined yourself to the God of Israel. In that kind of move and that kind of covenant loyalty, he is saying that this faithfulness is more beautiful and wonderful because it was talked about with Ruth all over the community. Everybody knew about this lady and her covenant loyalty. But here... He says, your hesed toward me as a potential goel is even greater than that initial commitment that you made to your mother-in-law. Now think about this. If Ruth had gone after the younger men, what happens to Naomi? She's still widowless, penniless. She loses her property. She loses it all. And so he, uh, here, he commends her, her character. And he removes any kind of anxiety whatsoever. She did not marry him. She's not wanting to marry him out of passion. Out of lust. 
Now, if this dude is 50 and she could have run after guys that were 25, what do you think? But that's not her goal. She is loyal to her mother-in-law. She is loyal to the family. She makes the decision that is absolutely stunning and beautiful. Why? Because what a greater act of loyalty that is conveyed here. In verse 11, again, he commends her character, removes any kind of anxiety that she may have. He commits himself to her needs. Do you know this word, worthy woman, is actually the same one that's used in Proverbs 31, verse 10, of the virtuous woman. Now, Proverbs hadn't been written at this point, but that's the word. She was a virtuous woman. She was worthy of respect. Her children would rise up and call her blessed. Now, we think we're home free, right? Verse 11 gives a dramatic pause, right? We think we're home free, but we're not quite there because something raises the level of drama in verse 14. Why? Because there's another kinsman that's nearer than Boaz. And Boaz is a man of integrity, of course, and he wants to make absolutely sure that they do it right. Um, in verses 14 through 18, we also hear Boaz's words to Ruth about how to handle this situation, that they need to be above reproach. Uh, why is that the case? Because if a kinsman redeemer, a sexually abused, a redeemee, then he lost all kinship rights. So Boaz knows that. So he's acting in absolute integrity. He's wanting to make absolutely sure that nothing thwarts the plan of him becoming the kinsman redeemer, unless it's someone redeeming her that is closer than he is. Notice at the end, we see Boaz honoring Naomi once again. You don't need to go home without food. And uh, even though we didn't know what an ephah was, we don't really know what exactly a barley was or a measure like this. It was a lot. It was probably 30 to 50 pounds. And he gives it to her. He's committed to Ruth and Naomi. And then he gets home for the mother-in-law report. Right? Do you think this lady was giddy? How did it go with the man? And Ruth tells her it all. And she says, sit tight. She trusts the Lord. I've done my part. I gave you the plan. You did your part. Now it's in God's hands. It's kind of the way I read that. So what is this narrative trying to teach us? Well, of course, we know that Boaz is the one who first initiates redemption. True? He really is. He's the first one that comes to the field, seeks out who she is, finds out about this woman. Uh, now hear this. Boaz is rightly related to Ruth in order to redeem her, right? If he's not, he can't redeem her. He also possesses the means to redeem her. And Boaz is willing to redeem her. And he's determined to redeem her. He's not going to rest. He's going to get it done by the next day if he can. He's willing because he loves Ruth. Now, folks, these are not just characteristics of this love story in the book of Ruth. These are characteristics of the true and ultimate faithful kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's give him honor by me giving you four quick applications at the end of this sermon. Number one, Jesus, as the Son of God, became rightly related to us in order to be our kinsman redeemer. Now you understand, folks, that Jesus was the Son of God for all eternity. He didn't become Jesus until he took on flesh. He's the Son of God for all eternity. And in order to be rightly related to you, our kinsman redeemer took on human flesh. You can't redeem those you are not rightly related to. Any amens? If you'll take your copy of the Bible, it'd be really good for you to see this one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. 
We're wrapping it up. I know the babies are tired and everybody's tired, but here we are. All right, chapter 2, verse 14. Listen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's me and you, he himself likewise partook. That Greek word partook means, not that you're just taking of something, it actually means you're partaking of something that was not yours before. So in his nature, he was all God, correct? But yet he took on, he partook of something else and added it to himself, which is humanity. He partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Think about this. The Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ took on human flesh in order to become right related to you. Why? In essence, so that he could die. God can't die. Humanity can. So Jesus Christ took on human flesh in order to relate to you in such a way that he could be your kinsman redeemer. There's an old song called What Earthly Reason. Anybody ever heard that before? What earthly reason did the heavenly father send down his son to purchase my pardon to pay for crimes he had not done? Y'all know this song? The second verse says, The fairest of angels were not summoned from the throne up in the sky to purchase my pardon. Not even the angels could die. The only provision for my freedom was destined to be the sweet lamb of glory and his only reason was me. Y'all never heard that song? I'm telling you, folks, the angels couldn't do it. Only the Son of God could redeem you. Only He took on human flesh to come to this earth. And again, in His incarnation, He takes His step into the realm of being your kinsman redeemer. He became rightly related to us by taking on humanity. Number two, Jesus Christ possesses the means to redeem. Remember Boaz? He, he's rightly related. He's got the means. And Christ does. He who be, he was God who became man. Not only that, he was the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. The Bible says, he that knew no sin became sin for us. He is the second Adam, according to the book of 1 Corinthians, who fulfilled the righteousness of God in the law. Think about that. He has all the means and power to save the fallen race of Adam. He's not lacking in funds in order to redeem you. He has what he needs to redeem his people. He has all the wealth that he needs. We needed a sinless redeemer. And he was sinless. We needed a redeemer who would fulfill the law of God in our place. And on our behalf. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. We needed a redeemer who could become man. And our God did. We needed a redeemer who was God at the same time. And he was. We needed a redeemer who would lay down his life. And he laid down his life for his Sheep. Y'all remember that study in John chapter 10? He did this for us. Number three, Jesus Christ was a willing redeemer. Boaz could have refused to redeem. She was a foreigner. Paul reminds all of us sitting in this room that you were not a Jew by stock. You were a Gentile. You were a foreigner. And yet the God of grace was willing to lay down his life in order to redeem you. Jesus gives this invitation. Come unto me all who are Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That burden of trying to obey the law to, make, to bring yourself to God, I'm telling you folks, that ain't going to cut it. 
That is absolutely insurmountable. And that's what the Pharisees were laying on the shoulders of the people. Jesus comes and says, trust me, come to me, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. No matter what your sin is, he says, come to me. The prospect of you working your way to heaven is a burden you can't bear. He will give you rest. Finally, not only is Jesus right related to us, possesses the means, is willing, but check this out. Jesus Christ is an able redeemer. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25, listen. He holds his priesthood permanently. Aren't y'all thankful for that? You don't have to run down to any confessional. Those guys are buying for a job that they don't need and can't have and ain't possible to have, period. It's wasted. It's useless to be a priest after the order of anyone because Jesus Christ is the priest. Y'all see that? He holds his priesthood permanently. And look what it says. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Check that out. That wording is important. Those who draw near to God through him. You can't be saved unless you draw close to God through the Son of God. Right? That's what it's saying. Since he always lives to make intercession. He is clothed with power and glory. The very one who spoke the world into existence became our substitute in order to redeem our hearts. Isn't that awesome? He came to set you free from the penalty and the power of sin. We have full redemption because we have an able and powerful redeemer. When you sing, here we are again, there is a redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. Your heart ought to be filled with love and joy and peace, believing that you have a redeemer. Boaz points to Jesus. But I want to remind you that Ruth points to ourselves. I'm determined for him to take me as his bride. Did she have some determination? With faith and humility and utter dependence, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and we cast ourselves upon his grace and we say, take me as yours or I will die. That's how we come to the Son of God in humility. Have you laid hold of Jesus Christ with that kind of faith exhibited by Ruth? Make me yours. I woke you kids up, didn't I? Seriously, that's what she's doing. Make me yours. Redeem me. When's the last time? Or have you ever come to him and said, Jesus, you are my redeemer. You can redeem me out of spiritual poverty. Redeem me, Lord, out of the futility of my sin. You are holy. You are righteous. I am sinful. Give me refuge and redemption in you. Folks, Jesus is the only one I would entrust my soul to. Got it? Not Baptist. Surely not Catholic. Not Methodist. Not Presbyterian. Not water baptism. Not sacraments. Jesus only. Jesus only is the only one for you to trust your soul to. And here's a lesson for everybody listening on TV and in this church. Here's what I know. Mark her down. Know the pastor said this. Y'all underscoring this? Everybody with me? Some of you are smarter than others. You're going to get this. I can guarantee you this on the authority of the Word of God. Jesus Christ, as the kinsman redeemer, has never turned away a needy sinner who has said to Jesus, Redeem me. He's never done that and he never will. Hallelujah. Right? He's the Redeemer, folks. And any needy sinner that cries out to Jesus for redeeming grace is going to get it. You can mark her down. It's in the Word of God. 
Jesus saves sinners. If you know you need a Redeemer, He's there. If you are ever awakened in your heart and mind to the fact you need a Redeemer, you got Him. His name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Father, we are so blessed. When we sing, Jesus, our Redeemer. When we praise you, Father, for giving us your Son. Lord, He was rightly related. He was willing. He was able. And He had the means to redeem us. Father, thank you so much for the Son of God who redeemed us from the power of sin. Bought us off the slave market. Made us His own. Lord, you are mine and we are yours. God, what an awesome prospect. Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that's lost, Lord, let, them, let that last statement resonate in their mind. If they're a needy sinner, I can guarantee you that Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, will redeem them. Lord, God, you can do it. We thank you, Father, for letting us come together today, for hearing the word, for preaching the word. It's an act of worship to you, and we honor you with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, folks. Well, uh, if you're a needy sinner and you're lost, I promise you Jesus can save you. I'm going to be in the back here on the right going out in the North Fellowship Hall. And if you'd like to talk to me about that, I will be there to talk with you. I hope you have a safe, wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Again, keep in mind, we will be back to 9 and 11 on next Sunday. Okay, it was mentioned that it would be one service next week. That's not going to be the case, okay? And we're working under the guise of what we're hearing, okay? So 9 and 11 next Sunday and probably all the way through June. People have asked about Sunday school. Our governor's not comfortable with that yet. So we're saying submit, all right? And then Sunday night services, uh, I think doing 2 in the morning, and the fact that we have to clean all the way up again, we're just trying to be mindful, okay? If you ever have any questions of what we're doing, though, call us. Before you throw us completely under the bus and run over us three or four times, call us and, and ask us, and we'll do our best to tell you why we're doing certain things. Believe me, we want to be back to normal just like you are, okay? But it's just going to take a little time. God bless each one of you. Remember, Pastor Philip will be at the North Fellowship Hall if you have any spiritual decisions to make, and he'd love to talk to you about that. Would you please uh, help us about 90 seconds here and stay with us. Uh, our oldest living church member, uh, Alice Hughes, and I wish I'd have put a picture up. I, I'm sorry. Uh, she's been here. Uh, her, her deceased uh, husband, Norman, has been here 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, their families grew up in this church. We have, what, Patty? We've got uh, Regina. There's Patty. We've got, um, uh, help me. Yvonne, yes, and their families all grew up here. We'd, we'd like to just say uh, to Miss Alice, uh, happy birthday. Debbie's going to play for us. Let's, let's stand and sing happy birthday to her. And at the end of this, well, let's just all yell, happy birthday, Miss Alice, okay? So here we go. Happy birthday. Thank you so much for that. She'll, she'll enjoy that so much. God bless you. The ushers will see you out, okay? Uh, back row at a time.